you would, would you take your Bibles and turn to Psalm 61. Psalm 61 will be our text this evening. This is a Psalm of David, and we don't know exactly what the context is that he wrote this, uh, but he is king at the time that he's written this. He's established as king. Uh, and it seems as if he's facing another national crisis. Perhaps it could be that he is, uh, this is one of the Psalms that he's written when he's been uh, chased out of Jerusalem by Absalom, uh, but we don't know. We just know that David is appealing to God uh, to rescue him and to return him to worship. And now it's a very short psalm, uh, but there's, there, it is packed full of very, not only theologically rich information for us, but very practical, too, in, in how we ought to consider things like worship, how we ought to consider our prayer lives. And also theologically, we see a heavy dose of um, eschatology present in this passage, And so, let us hear this psalm, and then we'll come back, divide it, and then look at each verse. Beginning in verse 1, Hear my cry, O God, listen to my prayer. From the end of the earth I call to you, when my heart is faint. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. For you have been my refuge, a strong tower against the enemy. Let me dwell in your tent forever. Let me take refuge under the shelter of your wings. For you, O God, have heard my vows. You have given me the heritage of those who fear your name. Prolong the life of the king. May his years endure to all generations. May he be enthroned forever before God. Appoint steadfast love and faithfulness to watch over him. So will I ever sing praises to your name as I perform my vows day after day. This is the word of God. I think it breaks up into four nice sections. A plea to be heard, that his prayers would be heard. In verses 1 through 3, verses 4 and 5 is a plea for worship. And then verses 6 and 7, a plea for the king. And finally, it ends with a promise to praise. But it begins with a a plea that God would hear his voice, that God would hear his prayers. And he just simply begins by, Hear my cry, O God. Listen to my prayer. Both of these phrases are in parallel. To hear my cry and listen to my prayer is stating the same thing, that God, will you listen to my heart as I pour it out to you? But we we ought to see the intensity of this when he says, hear my cry. It can be translated literally this way, is hear my ringing cry. As something that is pictured 
as he's not just praying once or twice, but there is a continual prayer upon his lips before his God. In Psalm 64, you see the same thing where he just says, Hear my voice, O God. And so you hear this, see this, this intensity of prayer that is coming from David's lips as he and as his nation is facing a moment of crisis. Now what does this communicate to us? But a man that has prayer continually upon his lips. And what an example for us is that may our prayer life be as a prayer life that is described as a ringing prayer. That it just continues. I can't help but think of Jesus' parable of the persistent widow. We read in Luke 18, and he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. It's almost as if Jesus says, let your prayers be ringing out. He said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man, and there was a widow in the city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. So she's in a crisis situation, and you notice the language of verse 3 in Luke 18, who kept coming to him. She was persistent. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, she kept coming to him, she kept requesting of him, and now he says she keeps bothering me. I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. Very vivid language that's used of this woman that keeps going to this unrighteous judge. Really a wicked ruler. And the wicked ruler, because of the persistency of this widow, finally says, okay, I will do justice. Listen to what Jesus says in light of this parable. He says, And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Now you hear these words again of David, Hear my cry. Oh God, hear my ringing cry. And David was that persistent man of God, continually bringing out his prayers. He says, listen to my prayer. Hear my cry, oh God. Does David think that God doesn't hear? Does he think that God doesn't know his heart? Does he think that God doesn't already know these things? Yes, of course he knows God hears his prayers. Yes, of course he knows that God knows what's on his heart. He knows that, that God is sovereignly over all of the events of his life. He, he spoke of this in the previous psalm. He knows those things, and those very things are what drive him to God, is that God is sovereign, that God does answer his prayers, and that in God's sovereign plans for our lives, it is these moments that he drives us to cry out to him. 
That's what's happening with David. And he gives us the occasion, from the end of the earth I call to you when my heart is faint. He says, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. Many commentators note that when he speaks of this from the end of the earth, I call you, it's, it's, it's obviously poetic language. It's not speaking of geographical location. It's speaking of that David senses a separation from God. This is not the first time David has sensed that. And in Psalm 51, he says, Cast me away, not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit away from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. When David was in great sin, he prays to God, please do not remove your, your presence from me. Do not be separated from me. So what's going on in David's life that he would say this? Well, we don't know. The text doesn't tell us. But it doesn't take long to look at David's life to see that it was a crisis after crisis. Whether it was his own sin or his own neglect as a father or uh, whatever it was, if it was in God's plan that Saul would come after him, there was many times where David probably thought he was alone. So he senses this. And he says this remarkable thing. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. I just want you to just reflect on, uh, on whose pen this comes from. David's the king. I think he's, it's, it's clear in the psalm that he's already enthroned over Israel, that the, the kingdom is solidified at the time of writing this. Whatever the crisis is, we don't know, but it's clear that I believe that he is, he is a king He's very powerful. He's very wealthy. In fact, you could say in Israel, in his kingdom that he has been chosen by God to rule over, he's the most powerful, most wealthy, most affluent person around. He's the most influential person around. But yet, he appeals to God for something that's higher. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. It's an astounding statement because he recognizes that anything of his own merit falls short. As he looks around as king in an earthly realm, there's nothing that equals himself. He can appeal to no other higher authority than to God. Nothing less than God can save him, and he recognizes that because he's the most powerful man in Israel. It's an astounding statement, and a humble statement by David. And he gives us this reason. So that's the occasion. He feels separated from God, and the reason is he appeals to God is this in verse 3. For you have been my refuge, a strong tower against the enemy. That's the reason he prays to God. David prays to God because he has always been there for him and will never leave him. 
That's why he prays this. God has been his shelter, his refuge, his rock in the past. And so he appeals to God because God has always been there for him. Notice the word for. For you have been my shelter this entire time. You see this in the Psalms often, where David reflects upon the past for encouragement in the present. That's exactly what he's doing here, is he's reflecting upon God's goodness in his life and throughout his life as a means of encouragement to get him through the time he's now facing. Let me ask you, when facing these things in your own life, do you ever reflect upon the fact that God has been good to you? That God has saved you? That God has clothed you? That God is, has fed you? That God does not forsake you? That can be the very thing that helps us get through it. You know, I think this shows us such an important reminder, and it comes out so clearly in the following verses, of why we need each other and why we need the church. Because every time we gather under the preaching of God's Word, we're encountering the gospel once again and afresh. Every time we partake in the ordinances, we're reminded visibly of what Christ has done for us. Every time we see a baptism, we're reminded of what it is that Christ has done for us. We are reminded of the goodness of God to us every time we gather. So in crisis the last thing that we ought to do is to pull away from the body of Christ, but draw close. For there is where we find encouragement. There is where we're reminded of God's goodness for us. But that's not what we do, is it? Whenever we're distressed, whenever anxiety overtakes us, whenever crisis has come into our life, whenever there's suffering, the tendency is to do the opposite of what God has not only commanded but says this is for your good. Imagine imagine if you were sick and the doctor says, here's this medication. It will actually help you get better. It will help you deal with the pain. It will get you through this. And you say, you know what though? I don't really feel like taking the medication that will make me feel better. I really don't like to, I, I, just, don't, I just don't want to be around medication right now. You would say that is absurd. But that's how we treat God. When God says, this is, this is how you get through suffering. This is how you get through life, as you get through it in a body of believers where you have the constant reminder of God's goodness for you. We ought to be encouraged by God's word when we gather. And we ought to encourage one another. In fact, we're told to encourage one another with singing of psalms and hymns and spiritual songs so that we would be encouraged. We're told in Hebrews not to neglect meeting together so that way we can always encourage one another until Christ returns. If you can't reflect on God's goodness for you, 
you come and worship with God's people and you're reminded of God's goodness for you. And so David then moves into a plea for worship in verses 4 through 5 where he says, Let me dwell in your tent forever. Let me take refuge under the shelter of your wings for you, O God, have heard my vows. Now this is all language of being in God's presence and in worship of God. That, so, so when you look at these verses and how they're worded, we ought to think God's presence in worship. And so this is a desire to be in God's presence. The tent would be a reference to being in God's presence. The tent would be a reference where God meets with his people. And that's what David would have known. And it's amazing when you read of this, who had uh, the responsibility of the tent? Well, if, if you've been here for our Hebrews studies, you know that it wasn't of the tribe of Judah. It was the tribe of Levi. David is of what tribe? He's of the tribe of Judah. And notice what he's asking. Let me dwell in your tent forever. So this is something beyond just the tabernacle. It's an amazing statement. I think David foreshadows what will become a reality in the new covenant of God's presence always being with his people in that tent. But I do want to point this out. David simply desires to worship. And I, I, I want to emphasize that again. David desires to worship God. This is not the only time he says something like this. When he is outcast, he, he says in Psalm 43, Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy, and I will praise you with the lyre, O God my God. And this is when David is, is booted out of Jerusalem in Psalm 43, where Absalom is taken over, and David's looking back at Jerusalem and saying, I want to be there worshiping God, according to God's appointed means of what worship is. David's praying to worship according to God's appointed means of worship. What is the desire of your heart in worship? I know that the reality of life kicks in at times and our desires ebb and flow but the consistency of a Christian life is one that desires to worship according to God's means. A, a Christian that does not desire to worship according to God's means is a contradiction in terms. So he prays for God's presence, which happens in Worship. That's what he's praying for. 
This is why he uses the language of the tent. This is why he uses the language of the vows. Let me take refuge under the shelter of your wings, the presence of God with his people. It's an amazing statement. He says, you have given me the heritage of those who fear your name. It's amazing that the Lord hears our vows and then he gives us the inheritance. A lot of discussion on what that inheritance would have meant if you were singing this in the temple worship at the time of David and after, you would have thought of your inheritance of the land. You would have thought about having the land of Canaan given to you and receiving God's blessings in the land. But it reaches so much further beyond that, doesn't it? It actually refers to the inheritance that we receive in a new heavens, a new earth, new glorified bodies, an eternal presence with Christ. That is our inheritance. Calvin says this, quote, He praises God that those who fear His name are not left to the poor privilege of rejoicing for a few days, but secured a permanent heritage of happiness. I just love the way he says that. What he's praying for in our inheritance is not just a momentary moment of joy, but rather an eternal heritage of happiness. What a joy that day will bring us, right? This is what he prays for in his worship. And then in verses 6 through 7, he shifts to pray for the king. He says, Prolong the life of the king. May his years endure to all generations. May he be enthroned forever before God. And and if you just look at these, there's three statements here about his life reigning. But it's in verse 7 that we see the meaning of all three statements, which is speaking of the eternal kingdom of God. And what is evident here is this is messianic. David prays for his future descendant that will reign forever. Remember, David was promised that from his line, a son of his would have an eternal throne. And so David's praying for the reign of his uh, future son, And so the language is very poetic in referring to that of eternity. It's a prayer for the eternal reigning of the king. David sees his son Solomon, the king of peace, take the throne as he closes his own eyes one last time. But it's not Solomon who's that eternal king. It's the Lord Jesus. And when does Jesus king, as king rule? When is Jesus king? Well, when he ascended. In fact, Christ sovereignly rules now as king. Hebrews 1.3 says this, After making purification for sins, 
he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And Christ made purification for sins. That's not something we're waiting to happen. That's something that's happened. And so when did Christ assume the throne? When he ascended and he sat down at the right hand of the Father, which is the position of dignity, it's the position of power, it's the position of honor, it's the position of the King, where Christ right now rules. Let me just give you a couple of points to think about in terms of Christ as King and ruling. First, very clearly, undebatably, He is King over His church. In Colossians in 1.18, and He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. So Christ rules over His church. He governs His church. He is the head of the church. He is the sole authority of the church. But He also rules over all creation as King. In fact, there's nothing outside of His sovereign domain. We read this, and working my way backwards from Colossians in the passage I just read, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him, and He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. When we say that Christ is our King, we are saying, yes, he is, the, he is the head of the church. But He's also King of all things, over all rulers. His dominion is over all that exist, and in Him all things hold together. He rules even right now. And I want you to notice how David prays for his kingdom. He says that it would be forever, and then David prays, appoint steadfast love and faithfulness to watch over him. That is grace to rule justly. May the king rule according to God's own standard. May it be marked by love and faithfulness. May he be a just king. May he be a righteous king. We've only had one and only have one righteous king. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And David then commits to singing. So will I ever sing praises to your name as I perform my vows day after day? David commits to continue to worship. He's asking the Lord, though, to be faithful. And as he asks the Lord to be faithful, the Lord's faithfulness in David's life will result in praise for God. God's faithfulness in your life 
God's faithfulness in all of our lives is why we praise God. Is because of his faithfulness to us. I want to apply this a couple of ways. The first we, we looked at, and that is this worship is the great desire expressed in this psalm as it is expressed in many psalms, worship. And he prays to worship as he has before. And so I, I asked, is, is worship your desire? Is worship your desire? Our, our understanding of worship today, frankly, has been corrupted. Modern ploys that appeal to people that are not saved to try to get them into the door has perverted worship in the church today. It just has. Because modern things that we try to do to get people in the door is not what God has prescribed his people to do. Worship is for the people of God. Now, do we want unbelievers to come? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely, we do. But we have to understand that those in Christ are the worshipers who worship in spirit and truth. And apart from Christ, you're worshiping in idolatry. That's just a fact. Worship is not for the unbelievers, it's for the saints. Now we call people to come to Christ that they may be true worshipers. The worship service is not for unbelievers. The worship service is for believers. We've gotten this backwards in our culture today. That's why so often there's always this pressure, well, why don't we do this or do that in a worship service? Well, because God has told us not to do those things by telling us what he wants us to do. Worship is part of the, worship of the Christian's life. It is the gathering of the saints when worship takes place. And it's regulated by God's word. We are to worship according to his means that he has instructed us with. And he's been very clear. There's to be singing. There is to be prayer. There is to be reading of scripture. There is to be proclamation of the word, preaching. There is to be the ordinances. And in that, we have this beautiful fellowship centered around Christ. When we add to that, we've We've actually brought strange fire into worship. When we go outside of it, what God has called us to do, we're doing something different. But the great desire of David's heart was that of worship. Is that our great desire? is to gather and to worship according to God's means, according to God's word. And, and if it's not, it's a heart check for us, isn't it? It's a heart check. Because you see, the longing of the Christian is to be in the tents of God forever. 
That's what David expresses. And there's something else here. The eschatological aspect of this. David prays that the Lord be faithful and bring about the Messiah. It's, it's, it's really mind-boggling and, incom- and incomprehensible that he prays for the Messiah in this way. From, from when you go from when he wrote this, we can look back and understand it now, but it's, it's just incomprehensible to me. This is a prayer for the Messiah. This is a prayer for his future, 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 future son. And he prays for the, for the king, and the king now prays for us an amazing thing to think about. And and there's just a couple of points that I want to make from this. The one is is very practical, and that is that David sets forth an example for us, and, and I'm not comparing kings to Christ that we face, but David sets an example for us to pray for kings to rule righteously now. I think that we can, we can make that application. That as he prays for this future son, it, David might have thought that Solomon was ushering in that, that age, or that it would be after Solomon, or soon after. We don't know what David was thinking, but he's praying that the king who would come from him, that would be there eternally, would rule righteously and with justice. So I think we can make the application that we are to pray for kings. And specifically, pray that kings will rule righteously. You think of what Paul writes to Timothy, where he says, First of all, then I urge supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people. And you might ask, well, who, who, what, what people? Who's all people? Well, he says, for, for kings and all who are in high positions. Why does he pray for that? Why does he pray for kings and those in high positions? It's this purpose. That we may lead a peaceful and quiet life. In other words, he prays for kings to rule righteously and to rule justly. But not just kings, but those that are in positions of power. We ought to pray for the civil magistrate. Now, I I know that we use that language here often, but that language is not very common language. It means this, is that we ought to pray for those in that sphere of civil governance. Whether it's a city councilman, it's a county supervisor, um, or it's a superintendent, please pray for your superintendents to act justly. Or it's a governor, or a congressman, or a senator, or a president. Or if it's the king of England. And we pray for this specific purpose their success in terms of not their plan, but their success 
in being a deacon of God to administer justice results in our peace and quiet life. So we ought to pray that they would rule righteously, and we know that none of them can rule righteously apart from the Holy Spirit. We ought to pray for them. And another thing is this, is that we have a somewhat cynical idea of rulers. I mean, you just look at the mocking that our president receives, whether rightfully so or not. I'm not making that point. We have a cynical view to those who are in power. We come up with nicknames that usually involve that they're liars. We have a cynicism. And so this has to remind us this is only one king reigns and only one king rules righteously and administers true justice. There's only one king that is truly just and truly righteous. And I got to tell you, it ain't the guy sitting in the White House. And it will never be that guy. And it's not the guy sitting on the the throne in England or any other country. It never has been. It's the one that's sitting on the throne at the right hand of the Father. And so we ought not put our hopes in any man. We put our hopes in the God-man. And if he is king, and as we read in Colossians, he is ruling over all things. He's ruling right now. Things are working according to his plan, to his eternal decree. There's nothing out of order. It's working out as he has planned it to work out, and it will work out according to his plan. And what do we know about him? He rules in faithfulness and righteousness and justice. King Jesus does no bad thing, but only King Jesus does that which is good. And we cannot pray for the first coming of Jesus, as David did. But we're actually called to pray for the second coming of Jesus. In fact, we see this in Revelation 22, in verse 20. He who testifies these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Jesus says he's coming soon. And then look at what John says, Amen, come, Lord Jesus. Actually, that's in the imperative when John says, come. And it's not that he's commanding Jesus. It's meant for emphasis. This is to be the prayer of the church. You know what's amazing about the book of Revelation? And I I truly say this uh, from a, a, a spirit of just... Of, of humility because I could be wrong. But I think that sometimes we look at the book of Revelation, many look at the book of Revelation as just being futuristic. And if it's, if it's just futuristic, what good did that do the first century church? Rather, I, I really think, and again, I say this, and if, 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 you, if you have a different view, that's fine. We can still enjoy one another's company. But I think this is past, present, and future. 
There's never been a time where the Church of Christ hasn't faced economic sanctions or persecution or all of the things that are warned of of the beast doing. And the beast is governments, if you read Daniel. And as you look through the whole entire book of Revelation, you see that the forces of Satan thrust themselves against the church, but the whole entire time, what do you see? King Jesus reigns, the church perseveres, the church grows, they will make war on the Lamb, but the Lamb has conquered them. And that's the thesis statement of the book of Revelation, is that they make war on the Lamb, but the Lamb conquers in Revelation 11, 14. And the church throughout it all prays this, Come, Lord Jesus. So while we don't pray like David for the first coming of the king, we take note from David and we pray for the second coming of the king. We pray for the return of our king, for him to consummate his kingdom here and to usher in the new heavens and the new earth where we will be in his tents forever. May that be our prayer tonight. Our Heavenly Father, we do pray for the return of Christ, our King, our Savior. We pray that His kingdom of peace would be ushered in. We thank You that we have a taste of that now, already. That we have peace. That He rules now. That He reigns over all things now. And what great comfort this brings us and encouragement we have to be reminded that Christ is King we pray for his return. And we pray that in the, in the meantime, that we would be by your grace faithful and that our eyes would be upon Christ, that we would cling to Christ, that he would be our shelter, that he would be the rock that is higher than we are. We pray these things in his name. Amen.